Well, kia ora koutou whanau. Welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation. Uh, today's conversation is a little bit different, a little bit less perhaps uh, conversational and a little bit more about a lot of facts and figures and information out there at the moment, especially around coronavirus and COVID-19, because we are talking to journalist and the Beijing Bureau Chief for the Washington Post, Anna Fifield. Uh, Anna is uh, a Kiwi. And she's done a bunch of stuff all over the world and worked her way up from starting in Rotorua, it would appear. And uh, yeah, now is known to be a foreign correspondent in Asia and the Middle East. She's got a pretty incredible story. Most of today's conversation is around uh, COVID-19 and what we're looking at right now and her experience based out of Asia and specifically based out of China. I hope you enjoy it. Here's Anna Fighting. And we're coming in red hot and live with Washington Post reporter Anna Fifield. Hello there. Hi, Pat. Hey, look, thanks so much for giving us some time. I'm sure, I said we're coming in red hot because I'm sure um, once people were like me, dirty little media guys, uh, figured out that you were in town and in New Zealand and writing nice things about New Zealand because of COVID-19, I'm sure you've been inundated with uh, requests for time. So I, I really genuinely appreciate you giving us some time today. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really appreciated. It's going to be fun. Sure. No, I'm really happy to do it. And I should say I'm not writing nice things about New Zealand because I'm well, a New Zealander. It's just no. I think there are nice things to say. No. Well, I guess yeah. m- most of us in New Zealand kind of saw you drop that article that talked about uh, New Zealand um, paraphrasing, obviously, but New Zealand's you know, I don't think you use the phrase leaving the world, but certainly doing very well with COVID-19 and looking for uh, elimination rather than just management of COVID-19. And even when I read that, even I went, oh gosh, are we really trying to eliminate this? Is this really possible? But that's the, the summation of sort of the article and what a lot of us read into. And then, of course, we all did get a bit proud and go, yay, nice things about us. Let's eliminate this SOB. Yeah. Is that? Do you think that's something that's actually doable and possible is that something that we're you know going to be able to do yeah i think so i mean i'm not a scientist or anything but what we've seen happen in taiwan and singapore uh and they're trying to do in south korea i mean two of those places in our islands south korea is basically an island because at the top is north korea cutting it off from the world and they are also pursuing this elimination model and we're an island you know look at the numbers that have come today 29 cases this is really starting to decline really rapidly so i think it is possible i mean the tricky thing is going to be keeping it out not just stamping it out you know so uh, obviously, that involves keeping our borders closed or tightly uh, regulating what happens on the borders, which is going to be extremely painful for a country like New Zealand. But I really think there's no other way uh, until there's either a vaccine or that this is eliminated worldwide. Yeah, and I, and, and for people who haven't picked up on that and maybe who are joining us uh, live today, um, the cases over the last few days have gone from sort of 80 a day to 60s to 50s today just announced 29 29 cases and i i was shocked actually because i guess a lot of us are thinking i well a lot of us i think i think the vibe that i'm getting about speaking to friends and family is we're kind of going we don't want to jump the gun we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves you know are we seeing a drop off now because this is the end of the first two week cycle yeah people who have covid 19 and they're in isolation with family members say maybe those family members who have got it are going to show in 10 days from now so it'll go up again so i, I like the uh, prime minister saying cautiously optimistic and i think that's probably where 
a lot of us are, but I'm, I was working a lot in radio around to, but in the first 10 years of this decade and, and the bird flu was right at the end of it. And I was working on ZB and I remember actually working on Sunday night with a co-host and we were talking about bird flu and CNN and, you know, MSNBC and Fox news were like worldwide pandemic. And it kind of never really eventuated into the threat that we're seeing now. And this feels very different, obviously, and it seems very different. And part of my, um, I have this this really kind of guttural feeling that I don't now want to do what we all did back then. We went, oh, that wasn't quite so bad because I feel like as soon as we go, oh, that won't be quite so bad, we'll we'll hit a we'll hit a spike again. And also, I don't want to do that because then we drop our defenses. You know, things will be fine, and and then defenses drop, and then people get infected without thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing in this situation is that we can see that it's not fine if you don't do anything yeah. because we've seen, you know, poor old Italy and Spain and the UK and now the US, you know, when you don't act, this is what happens. It's super infectious. Yeah. Um, I think the encouraging thing about the New Zealand situation is that, you know, probably half of these new cases are in clusters. Yep. So it's really contained. There's almost no community transmission in New Zealand. People aren't going to the supermarket and catching it in the same way that they have in other countries. So that's something really different. And I think a reason why, yeah, there may be a spike as people who are in bubbles now or close to clusters uh, test positive. But um yeah, this looks like to be containable in this uh, with this approach. And I, I had a bit of a wake up call even today. It's funny the the there's been a few moments through this that I've kind of gone, holy crap. And one of them was on. Um, I'm not sure when you got back into New Zealand, but on the day of lockdown, were you in New Zealand for the day of lockdown? Yeah. Yeah, I was. So on the day of lockdown, the police chief went, "Don't even think about driving to the beach." And I was like, "Holy moly, this is really serious." Because I was, you know, I was not looking to break rules, but I did think, you know, if we get cabin fever, we jump in the car and go up the coast a bit and we won't interact with anyone, but we'll just, you know, we'll have a drive and we'll just, you know, really, we might even get out on the beach and have a picnic a hundred meters away from anybody else, but we won't be stuck in the house. And then when I heard him say that, I was like, holy crap. And today I had another moment when I saw that the cluster and bluff from that wedding was up over 80 people. There was only bloody 70 people guests at the wedding. So there's so obviously either everyone at the wedding and staff have now got it, or obviously people from the wedding have taken it home and infected people around them. And it just goes to show, I think, the wake-up call for me is, if you're near it, how easy it is to get. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and we've learned so much as this has gone on as well. Like, so when I was still, I was in Beijing, you know, January, February, beginning of March, still covering the outbreak from the beginning, you know, and all like my, I brought my child home to New Zealand to be with my mom and go to school here. And all my friends were in the same situation. Everybody's spouses and kids had left and it was just the diplomats and the journalists left basically. But, you know, we would ha we were all by ourselves, you know, it was really lonely, everyone working from home, and, but all of us would be out reporting or whatever during the week. Mm -hmm. Then on Saturday nights, we'd have dinner parties at each other's houses uh, because right. that was our only social interaction of the whole week. Right. And now when I look back at that, I'm like, whoa, we should not have been doing that. Yeah, People yeah. have been to the border of Hubei province coming over and giving them a hug hello but but we didn't know just how infectious it was at that stage so i think yeah we've learned a lot as this has progressed so i mean new zealand is in a fortunate fortunate situation to have been able to see this play out and to take these kinds of measures because yeah we now know you can get it from surfaces and yep. it can stay stay for a long time i had a um 
the the whole hugging thing. I had a friend turn up on the Tuesday before the lockdown, so you know, thirty six hours before the lockdown, and she runs a hair salon in Dunedin, and she'd run out of um, hand sanitizer, and she needed it to do her last clients because that was part of the conditions for staying open under level three, and I just ordered. I should preface this by saying not because I was hoarding or I'm a prepper. The only hand sanitizer I could find on the internet was a five liter container. So I'd ordered a five liter container and then put it into a whole lot of little bottles and given it to friends and family and neighbors. And so I gave her some and she was feeling a bit sickly, um, a bit of a cold, you know, but it, it was a cold. She had a runny nose. And at that stage, people were saying, well, if you've got a runny nose, it's not COVID. Um, so whilst we didn't, you know, embrace like you would a normal hug, it was sort of that kind of, you know, that high school hug you give, that kind of A-frame sort of around the shoulder, but not too close. And yeah. then two or three nights ago, she said to me, um, oh, I'm going to have to go get tested for COVID. And I'm like, what? And mm-hmm. later on, I checked in on her and I said, how are you going? And she texted me back and said, oh, look, I've, I've, I've been diagnosed as that. And I was like, oh my goodness, what's the, you know, what, is there any, information for people who you've had contact with and she went april falls and i went oh you utter utter bitch yeah, you not such a funny joke well it was quick enough that i could still see the humor in it but it was um because when you start because at that point like if i had known today what i knew what that tuesday it would have been like well you can stay back three meters and i'll throw you the stuff because we've learned along the way you know we've learned along yeah. at the start they were saying actually you know the face mask can be more helpful um, more harmful than helpful and now they're saying actually face mask could be quite good so this learning process and yeah. maybe maybe we're lucky because of our isolation that this learning process hasn't impacted us like perhaps the learning process has impacted you know, Manhattan or, or Italy or Spain, they're learning and they're going, oh, sheesh, we should have been doing this two weeks ago. So maybe mm-hmm. that's been a useful thing for our isolation and maybe the the early onset of uh, alert level four. Yeah, I think definitely the, early, the onset of alert level four. You know, I came into New Zealand on March the 8th. Um, I hadn't seen my kid in eight weeks. Wow. I was coming back here to see him. Yeah, it was really tough. Uh, and so I flew in, I came from China via South Korea, which at that stage, you know, was a real hotspot. And I was really shocked when I arrived at Auckland airport. Um, there was no temperature screening whatsoever. Right. Uh, when, you know, everywhere else you go through, like even to get into my apartment block in China and things, you know, they've got a, like a contactless gun that they yep, can point yep. at your head. There's no thermal screening or anything. And then I uh, went through and I said, you know, I'd come from China. So I filled out a form, but they didn't check my form or anything. They didn't check that I'd actually written a phone number or an isolation address. So I was pretty shocked at that stage by how lax it was at the border. Um, And I did go into isolation. I spent two weeks by myself on Waiheke Island, which was really nice. Not a a bad place to isolate. (laughs) I thought if I'm going to be by myself for 14 days, on my birthday, Ah. in my home country. So, yeah, I, I was there, but really by myself. But what I found, you know, it really does funny things to your head. So yeah, every little time I had to like blow my nose or something, I was like, do I have it? Yeah, because yeah, I yeah. was worrying, you know, it's so infectious and so many cases are mild. Do I have it? Am I going to put my mother and my son at risk when I go see them? And, you know, it was really hard not to be paranoid about that. And in fact, I called the health line after Idris Elba was diagnosed. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the I called the health line and said, I'm going a bit crazy up here. And they, they were really great. They were like, just relax. It's all fine. You've got no symptoms. And so I salute the health line people who, yeah, are doing a great job. But there is that psychosomatic, like when my 
friend played that trick on me, you know, for the next 15 minutes, I was a bit like, oh, yeah, I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling it in the back of my throat feels it. It has been feeling a bit weird for a day or so. And then, of course, yeah. I was had. Yeah. But um, but the same sort of thing, you know. I've got I've got an allergy to to milk, and it makes my sinuses run. And I've had a bit of milk in the last week, and I've been blowing my nose. And the first reaction is, oh, oh no, hang on, I I know what this is, you know. But there's yeah. that there's that initial sort of thought. Um, but but like you say, the 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 thing that I am most uh, impressed by with what we've done in New Zealand is that community transmission. Um, they say two percent guaranteed. Uh, sorry, two percent confirmed identified. But there is like 160 out of the 1,200 cases that they're investigating. So, you know, it could be 100, but still comparatively, compared to the full number in the rest of the world, it's it's pretty impressive. And I and I I get the feeling that maybe we just jumped in time because you know you're seeing around the world places that are doubling their cases in two and three days. You know that means if we had to waited another 48 hours or another 24 hours, you know our number today could be 1,800 or it could be 2,000 rather than 1,200. So. It feels like we just, you know, when you 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 make a decision or you do something or you go somewhere and you realize if I had made that decision five minutes later, it would have been the worst decision in the world. You just snuck yeah. in whatever that was. I think we just snuck in on this one, which is great. Yeah. I mean, and you can see like a really good case in point here is the situation in Japan, which like two months ago had that cruise ship, the Diamond Princess there, yeah. like full of coronavirus cases they uh you know they let those people off the ship and go onto public transport and carry on their way you know it's been two months and it's only this week that they've started to lock down mm. and even then it's not a real lockdown like ours it's like a request kind of voluntary lockdown people are still on crowded subway trains going to work and things so um but and like epidemiologists are there are saying you know it's too late this you know uh the horse is bolted or whatever the cliche is i'm looking for yeah, yeah. here they should have been much more proactive much earlier um and so in like japan had its own considerations it didn't want to annoy china it didn't want to cancel the summer oh. olympics uh so there were lots of factors going on there but they you know now in the situation of japan the cases are skyrocketing yep and it's going to be much more prolonged much more difficult japan has a really old population that's extremely vulnerable to this so mm -hmm. you can see a situation where this is going to take japan the rest of the year to get out of as opposed to new zealand i think it's kind of like short sharp um shock and then hopefully out the other side well if people haven't seen it yet or they haven't caught up with it yet um, it seems that today we got, as we said before, 29 new cases. Um, mm -hmm. And also from midnight tonight, anyone entering the country is going to be basically, and sounds a bit Stalinist, but basically in a government appointed, you know, 14 day um, isolation. Basically, yeah. government's putting people up in hotels for 14 days. Um, I saw right at the end of the press conference, the Prime Minister was asked who's going to pay for that. And uh, Jacinda said, um, yeah, we are the government to start with because it's all happening so quickly. Um, I wonder, I spoke to a um, specialist in infectious diseases from the Otago University uh, a week before we went into lockdown. And his position was um, that the likely scenario once we go through this is risk management as opposed to complete lockdown. And the example he gave at the time was, so for example, if someone was coming here from northern Italy right now, that would be beyond the risk that you would allow to happen. And he talked about it like... Um, you know, so then what happens is you might have an outbreak in an area. You might have, you know, a, a cluster come up in Waikato, but it doesn't lock the whole country down. 
Um, and I wonder if that's the next step. But then when I read your article, because I'm thinking about this kind of managed risk, read your article, and it was the first time I thought, really, can we eliminate this thing and have sort of no one left with it? Because I also bounced that off the idea of, um, I think they say 25% of people show no signs. So yeah. does that mean at the moment, actually, we've got 1,200 cases, we've actually got 1,600 cases in New Zealand, but 25% of them have, have no signs shown? And and yeah. how do we how do we eliminate that? Yeah, well, I mean, that's so that uh, some cases like so Iceland, which I think has got like 400,000 people, they've tested the entire population. Yeah, wow. uh, and there they found actually half of people were asymptomatic. So a lot of people somewhere between a quarter and a half wow. um, can be asymptomatic. But I think that's the whole point of the lockdown. Yeah, because yeah. this has a maximum incubation period of 14 days. Usually it's like five to seven. So if people have been infected, it should show up in this time. Um, and then, you know, that's why Jacinda has said like two false incubation cycles before we think about uh, easing up on this. So, you know, maybe they'll get to a situation where, uh, you know, they, they keep a, a city around a cluster locked down or on level four while everyone else goes to level three. They've yep. said that that's possible to have differences, but I think, you know, who knows? They're just waiting and seeing how it plays out. If we get to two weeks' time and are down to two a day, it'll be a very different situation. Um, you're the bureau, the current bureau chief for the WAPO, Washington Post, in Beijing, and you have been in Tokyo as well, eh? Is that correct? Yep, yeah, correct. Um, and obviously, in Europe, we were live streaming. I always remind people of that because sometimes I think if it's recorded, we can cut that out at the end. We're live streaming. So I always say that out in front so people know. So if I ask any kind of question that is not appropriate to answer, then don't answer it. But are you able to comment on the accuracy and your understanding of what's happening in China? Because there has been a lot of commentary that perhaps their numbers are um, being kept from the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, any statistics in China, whether it's coronavirus deaths or GDP growth, you know, you take with a grain of salt. Right. Everything is very political there. And, you know, all of them I look at not so much as a raw number, but as a trajectory or a trend or something. So when we've seen recently this trend falling down, you know, this week they had a day with no deaths at all for mm -hmm. this time. Um, I think that's indicative of the way it's going, not actually the raw number. I think in the situation of China, we know for sure that the death toll is much higher than or significantly higher than the official number of like three and a half thousand, because at the beginning, they just weren't testing. Um, so many people died without being, you know, they had respiratory right. symptoms and they were healthy beforehand and they died. And they, you know, the real telltale sign for families, I talked to of people who've had somebody, lost somebody to this. They said, you know, the body was taken away immediately right. by guys in hazmat suits and cremated that same day. So that for them is proof that it was coronavirus. Mm -hmm. So I think it was certainly bigger than, uh, than the government has said. But whether it's like a, of a similar proportion to what's happening in Italy and Spain now, you know, we'll just never know. Um, I mean, the things we do know is that China tried to suppress this at the beginning. And for a long time, they uh, denied that this was happening, tried to keep it under wraps. Uh, they said it couldn't be transmitted between humans when they knew that it could and then had to admit that. But also, like, really astonishingly, they knew that this virus was being passed between people in Wuhan 
and they allowed five million people to leave the city in the lead up to the Chinese New Year festival at the end of January. Right. So that, I mean, that's what I think a lot of people have found so difficult to understand. I mean, it is difficult to understand. Like, how could they knowingly allow five million potentially infected people just to like, go to all lengths of the country? Um, so they, the Chinese government's really trying to do some uh, rewriting of the narrative and doing yeah. <laughs> propaganda for itself now, which yeah. is, you know, pretty easy inside China because they control the entire internet and there's very little independent media. Um, not so easy to do outside of China and with journalists like us who can try, you know, report things uncensored. And you get the freedom to do that. I mean, you're working for the Washington Post, but you're but you're in China. You can can you mm -hmm. say what you want as you like when you're working out of China? Yes. Yeah. I mean, not only can I, but I must. Mm -hmm. You know, I must report what we understand to be the truth to the best of our ability. So, I mean, there's certainly you know, I'm not going to not write a story because it might annoy the government. You right. know, that's not my job. Um, my job is to tell the truth as best I can. The bigger problem in China is just that. It's like getting access to facts and getting access to people. So even in the two years that I've been in Beijing, it's become so much harder just to talk to anybody at all because people are scared of contradicting the government or getting in trouble with the right. government That's under the current leader, Xi Jinping. Things have gotten much tougher. Um, so this we encounter a lot where people don't want to talk. Um, and getting like ordinary people don't want to talk right. and getting officials to talk is like impossible and pretty hopeless, frankly. Um, they don't tell you anything, you know, remotely useful. Um, so, but in the last few months in particular, maybe you or your listeners know that there's been this kind of war building between the United States and China where China kicked out three Wall Street Journal correspondents, then America imposed limits on Chinese correspondents, which led to 60 Chinese nationals leaving uh, the United States at very short notice. And then China retaliated by kicking out all Americans working for the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Washington Post, uh, which means my colleague has had to leave China. Uh, and so I had already come to New Zealand at that time. So I, I don't have to leave because I'm a New Zealander. Right. Um, but now I'm shut out of China because they've put in this foreigner ban since I've been home. So, um, But so that is kind of a sign of how the Chinese government is trying to curtail our ability to work and to try to silence us however they can. And sell their narrative as opposed to perhaps the 100% accurate narrative. I don't think they think we're going to sell their narrative. But they want us to stop doing things like traveling to Xinjiang and writing about a million Uyghur Muslims who have been detained uh, for re-education up there and trying, yeah, going to Wuhan and saying, you know, oh, look, the death toll is much higher than what the official statistics right, say. Right, right. They want to curb our ability to report independently. I mean, looking at the pictures last night, I'm sure you saw them. I was watching One News, uh, Wuhan. I mean, I think the first thing as Kiwis, we don't quite get the economies of scale. I mean, Wuhan yeah. is a city of 11 million people, and we're like, what the, you know, two and a half times the size of our entire population. And looking at it, looking at it on the news last night, I was like, that place looks amazing. I'd love to visit there. You know, the light show and things are going on. Do you do you get the sense that that is genuinely the people of Wuhan going, we're, we're, we're free now and this is gone? Or is that more of a show by the government to the rest of the world saying, look at us, or you can stop looking at us now because we're all, we've got our lights back on, so everything's fine. Yeah, 
That's the latter. Right. This is the government saying, you know, we have fought this people's war against the coronavirus and we've triumphed. And so they are really trying to show this as a way that Wuhan overcame this um, tragedy. But in fact, you know, from reporters who are on the ground in Wuhan for when it started opening up yesterday, mm-hmm. they, you know, the trauma in that city is really palpable. The people, people have been shut inside their apartment, like tiny apartments. I know of families, like four people in a tiny apartment for 76 days. Yeah. I mean, how would you not go crazy and kill each other? <laughs> um, so these people now can breathe out a little at least. But yeah, Probably everybody's lost loved ones. Everyone's had a huge economic hit. People are still terrified going out into the street. And it's going to take a lot of time to get over this. And there's no real kind of mental health apparatus in China. Or there's a lot of stigma around it and not much availability. So I think there's going to be a lot of kind of psychological damage to try to heal now. And probably the big question is if you do kill your mother-in-law because you're completely sick of being with her for seven or six days, is that considered a coronavirus death or is it not? <laughs> I mean, that would be the other question, but who knows? Yeah, um, I'll confirm. Yeah. The other thing about the economies of scale is I was I it, probably most of us are looking at the numbers every day, or maybe it's just us media media geeks. But I think a lot of people are interested in the numbers every day. And I noticed um, India looks really healthy at the moment, but when you broke down the numbers, and I was like, this doesn't make sense because you know you think of the slums in India, you think of five hundred million people being under the poverty line, and they're only testing a hundred people per million at the moment. And you kind of go, oh, okay. So that's why they're not showing all the cases in the world, whereas some countries are testing 40,000 people per million. Um, And I wonder if, um, I don't know if uh, if you've got any knowledge or comment on what's happening within India, um, but because, again, of the mass scale of it, I wonder if that is due its peak and outbreak yet. Um, And obviously the people who are getting hit hardest often are those who don't have the access to the healthcare like maybe the middle and upper class do. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about India more than what I've just read in the paper and things, but it seems like with everything is testing, that's the key, right? And so, yeah, there's hardly any testing in India. So, of course, there are no cases. Same thing in Japan. You know, it's not just like a low-income country situation. Japan's testing rate was really low. So their, you know, positivity rate was also really low. Um, But then you look at South Korea where they just tested so many people and that's how they were able to really get a handle on it really quickly and to try to contain it at the outbreak center there. So I think it's testing that makes the big difference. Um, There was a lot of... I guess criticism that New Zealand was not testing enough at the beginning, but mm-hmm. they've obviously recognised that and tried to ramp it up a lot now. So that's going to be key as we go through these next two stages, a few stages, I think. Um, yeah, and the same thing in the United States, we've seen that that's been a big issue of not being able to get tests. Um, obviously, you you live in and have spent a lot of time in uh, both Beijing and, and Tokyo. Um, I'm wondering as well, a bit like we hear, you know, Italy, Manhattan again, because people live on top of each other, this is one of the reasons that it spread so virulently through those areas. Even if you went to, again, economies of scale, even if you went to emergency services or essential services only in a place like Tokyo, are you still going to have tens of thousands of people traveling in subways together just because of the purely the population size? Or is it the kind of place that you could shut down and have like in New Zealand empty streets? Uh, yeah, you could. You could. I mean, it takes 
anything of like this is possible, right? It takes political will. Mm -hmm. You have to have a politician willing to say that, to say all businesses are now going, you know, working from home or shutting down. Subways are not going to run except for emergency services. Yeah, but uh, but the government in Japan has not been willing to take that political step. Um, and it's kind of very Japanese in a way. And that whole thing, <laughs> you know, it's like we we kindly request you to stay at home. It's not like here, it's like stay home, save lives. This very simple, direct message and that it's, yeah, not um, equivocal. But I mean, yeah, the denseness of population in all of these places must have an impact in that you know if you live in an apartment building and have to push buttons to get home every day yep. in the lift it's a big difference from New Zealand, you know and travel on a packed crowded crowded subway train where you know you're like sardines and like they literally push you into the train to pack you in yeah perfect environment to spread uh to spread a virus that's we a, don't have that that's exactly anyone. the example i was talking to someone sitting on the couch before we went into lockdown and i was like places like uh, beijing and i said and i went there's a place i think it might be in japan where they actually employ people to push you onto the onto the trains yeah. and we you go to yeah. video and you have a look at it and there are like small yeah, japanese men yeah white gloves dropping their shoulder and pushing people into yeah, l almost literal. Probably, actually, even closer than sardines if you if you worked it out mathematically. Yeah, I had a subway ride once where my feet were not on the floor. I was so <laughs> tightly packed that I was like up a little bit and swaying, but I wasn't moving anywhere. Yeah, because everybody was. Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, so yeah, you look at that and you think, how is Japan's rate not higher? Obviously, working for the Washington Post, you're connected to America uh, and to the mm -hmm. U.S. in general. Um, what what's the feedback you've got coming from your colleagues, if there is any, about you know what's happening in America? Because we hear about America being the new epicenter in Manhattan in specific, but then we also get a report yesterday that said the numbers may not be as bad for fatalities as they thought a week ago. Are you hearing mm -hmm. much back, and are you getting much feedback from like your your colleagues in the Washington Post? Yeah, I mean, it's a really weird situation because, you know, in January, February, you know, I was getting so many emails from my bosses and just from colleagues and friends there saying, how are you doing? And like checking up on me and, all, you know, that kind of stuff. It was really nice. And it's really strange to think they had two months, you know, America had two months notice of this yeah. and that they did not prepare in any way, it seems, uh, for this eventuality. So it's really weird now for me to be asking the same questions back and me to be asking, you know, I was getting masks sent to me in Beijing uh, in February because we couldn't get any more masks. Mm -hmm. so now I'm in the situation I am posting masks to my <laughs> friends from China right. to Washington, D.C. So it's a really weird situation. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot of frustration there because it could have been handled so much better if they'd prepared properly and looked at how this was spreading even once it got to italy they still had a lot of um warning of what was to come so yeah there's a lot of frustration i think that's why you know the story that i wrote about new zealand's case has got a lot of hits online i think because people are so interested to see a competent government you know like people acting proactively and trying to do everything they can which is a very different case from how many people think it's been mm. handled in the United States. And it seems that I, I was one of the podcasts I've done recently was to a New Zealand comedian who's living in New York. And it mm. seems the point he was making when I said, you know, in New York, I know there's restrictions. Is there lockdowns? And, and Steve went, Pat, 
could you imagine Americans being told they must stay at home? What would happen? And it was like, because there's this element of, you know, um, my freedoms and I'm a free American and land of the free. Um, I, I, and I also wonder, talking like we did before, going back to, you know, previous pandemics, um, Ebola came into America, but it was basically stopped and cured. And it's like, you know, um, we can handle this. We've got the doctors and the medicine to handle this. And I wonder if they've also had that false sense of security, the public that is, because we can always take care of this. You know, we've got the greatest healthcare system in the world. I mean, that's a, a conversation all on its own, but, you know, in general, and 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 that on top of um, land of the free, mm -hmm. it, I, I just don't, I don't, like if they did a lockdown, I just don't know how that would ever pan out. After Steve, that one, I kind of went, oh yeah, gosh, I watch these things online called Second Amendment Audits. I love them. And it's people basically mm -hmm. going up and filming police stations and military bases. And of course, they yeah. get questioned by the police and they just recite the law. My First Amendment right, freedom of the press, I'm allowed to do this. And they're basically testing to see if these guys, will, the, the police or the military will impinge on their civil rights. That's an attitude going through Americans yeah. on, on some level. So, you know, being like I, I read today that the uh, cars are being stopped on the Auckland motorway by police. I can imagine if it happened in America, it would be like, what is this, Nazi Germany? You don't ask for my papers. I'm a free man. I want to travel on the way freely. The Fourth Amendment says I can travel unmolested down the highway. You know what I mean? I just, anyway, I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling now. Yeah, yes, I know what you mean. And there really is an element of that. And when you see everybody lining up at gun shops uh, yeah. during a you know pandemic, it's like, what? you know, there are many things about America I'll never get. Um so yes, land of the free, frontier mentality, yada, yada. Of course I get that. But also I think we are freedom-loving people. Mm. You know, New Zealanders are very outdoorsy. I used to going tramping or going to the beach and just being outside and having barbecues, especially when the weather remains so nice and things. Mm -hmm. So well, at least up here in the North Island. Uh, but um, so I think it's hard for anybody to do this. Uh, but I think it's a lot about messaging and the way it's explained to people. And so that's, I think... One of the things I noticed, not just with the story I wrote, but when I was tweeting out stuff that was happening in New Zealand, like like the text message alert we all got at 6.30 two Wednesdays ago saying, act like you have COVID-19. Yeah. You know, stay inside, save lives. Yeah. It was very clear that this is not about your freedom or whatever, but this is about keeping grandma alive kind of thing or like keeping people alive. And I think that if there had have been much more clearer messaging in the United States in the sense that this is, uh, you know, about safety and things that it, it would, it's possible. It's definitely possible to do much more of a lockdown than they did uh, in any of these places. Uh, that was the messaging for Otago University. I saw it like three or four days, maybe the week, like when I had my um, uh, infectious diseases specialist on the week before, that's what he said. Cause I, I did that example of learning to drive and you, you treat everyone else on the road like they're an idiot. I said, should we be doing that with us? Should we be treating everyone else like they've got COVID? And he's like, no, 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 you should be, you're the idiot. You should be treating yeah. it like you've got it. And that's, he said that very, very clearly. Um, and then at the same time, Otago University was do this for your nana, do this for your papa. That's what they were doing. And then of course, unfortunately, 200 of them had a fricking party um, for St. Patrick's Day. But you know, but I think it's, again, it's the learning process. They probably were all, you know, it doesn't affect us millennials. It's not a big deal. You know, we're here. And they probably wouldn't do it now. I imagine if those same 200 people were told today, would you like to come to a party? It would be no, I would imagine. Part of the learning yeah. curve. 
Yeah, you'd hope. <laughs> but then again, you also look at the numbers. 20 to 29 is the most infected people in the country. Um, yeah. Was it on the news last night that I heard? I can't remember. I'm ingesting this stuff from everywhere as to why our death rate is so low. And one of the reasons they said is, well, actually my paraphrase of what they said is, you know, because they're all being connected, most of them being connected to international travel, you know, it's not like the vulnerable 80-year-olds are the ones going off doing the travel. It's the young, fit, healthy people. So mm-hmm. they're bringing it back and and they're potentially one of the re- potentially one of the reasons that the death rate's low because it's not all the not all the 80-year-olds that have it, although obviously some do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, elderly people and people with underlying health conditions are obviously most uh, at risk of yeah, developing serious complications with this. But, you know, a moment that was really shocking to me was when the uh, doctor in Wuhan died. Uh, the guy who was the whistleblower who had been trying to alert his colleagues that there was this mystery virus spreading through Wuhan and was then, you know, he was called in by the police. He was forced to write an apology, a self-criticism, saying he shouldn't have done it and things. And then he fell ill from the coronavirus and he was doing fine. He was recovering, 34 years old, healthy doctor, and he died. You know, that it's just, there are a lot of people who just suddenly seem to crash. They go into organ failure or something. So, yeah, so yeah I think even young people can't be complacent about this. Um, yeah. They can't assume that it's going to be mild for them. And yeah. yeah, they can't assume that it's going to be mild for anybody they give it to. I've been listening to, actually listening to a couple of podcasts over the last week, listening to Joe Rogan, who's obviously a 50-year-old, you know, super healthy, fit guy, and him saying a similar sort of thing. Uh, there was a, a friend of his who was a fit, healthy, strong, athletic comedian who was 31 who got it, who said he thought, he literally thought he was going to die. And that yeah. was the wake-up call for, for him to go, yeah, this is probably more serious than we're thinking. And Yeah, and I also saw on... Uh, Fox News, unfortunately. Well, I actually saw a highlight on Fox News talking about, um, you know, churches wanting to still participate and get together. I'm kind of referencing your the doctor dying, the people who are involved, that in Italy, like 60 priests have died from this. Yeah. And, and there are dozens of uh, doctors and nurses who have died from this. And... Yeah, and, and then you hear about Prince, like you said, Idris Elba. My one was Prince Charles. Yeah, Prince, if Prince Charles can get it, and Tom Hanks... You know, and 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 that was the really weird thing. Yeah, yeah. And Boris Johnson, although we're we're hoping the best for Boris, but you know, the bravado that Boris showed, unfortunately, I was at a hospital two weeks ago and I shook everyone by the hand, and then he got it was you know not smart, but obviously still wish him all the best and that he recovers fully because that would be because people are going to die, and it means that you know people that we know, meaning profile people, are going to probably die from this. Um, I mean, so often when you hear these things, you hear numbers about, you know, 30,000 people in Ethiopia have died from X, Y, Z. It's it's easy to look away. But, you know, you hear Tom Hanks has got it or Idris Elba's got it or, or you know, and if any one of those profile people, not the ones that I've mentioned because I don't want to make it personal, but if a profile person died from this, you know, it's it, that brings it home again. It's, it's not like when Kobe Bryant died, but the reason that it got so much attention was because it was Kobe Bryant. So if someone got this and died from it, who was profiled, that would, yeah, that would shock yeah. everybody. Yeah, well, you can see, I mean, there's quite a few politicians in the US who have had it as well. Mm-hmm. You can see that those people who are out there, you're shaking hands all day and meeting a lot of people, you can see that they're at risk. But the, um, yeah, Prince Charles, how many people does he see on a regular day? Probably yeah. not very many. So the fact that he could catch it 
Um, I mean, I don't know his schedule leading up to that, yeah. <laughs> whatever it was, but you know, he's, I don't think of him as being out and about a lot. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really scary. Yeah. And I think. And you think about, I was thinking about when Tom Hanks announced and you kind of go, so he's been in Sydney and the, one of the ironies that he probably got diagnosed so quickly because he wasn't in America. He was in Sydney, so he got to the, got to use the Australian health system. But, you know, every time Tom Hanks went out on the street, who knows, 10, 20, 30 people would have come up to him, wanted to shake his hand, wanted to get a photo, wanted to get a selfie. And, yeah, yeah. and that's why if you treat it like you've got it, mm-hmm. in that instance you can go, look, I'd, I'd love to do a selfie with you, but, you know, we're in this pandemic and I think it's safer for all of us if we just way from a distance, <laughs> way yeah. from two meters away and say, hi, nice to meet you, rather than... Yeah. But I think that's why it's been so dangerous in America because the messaging has been so confusing and so mixed. It's like, no need to wear a mask. Oh, maybe you should wear a mask. Oh, yes, wear a mask, but don't buy a mask. Make a mask out of a bandana and things. So there's all of this guidance, which is, um, yeah, so confusing and no clear message for people. And, you know, in a society that is so polarized anyway, and still now you have, like, states in the South that are, um, kind of defiant and saying, you know, we don't need to worry about this virus. And, you know, it's, it's um, you don't want to add politics into something like this, which is a, simply a matter of public health. Um, so I think it's been very confusing and people have been able to read into this, that it's a democratic conspiracy or that it's spread yeah. by 5G or that it's, you know, all these conspiracy theories that have been floating around. And that's also one thing that I really noticed, you know, coming from this writing for an American audience in an American paper where everything is so divided mm-hmm. um, to see in New Zealand how there is a sense of collective responsibility and to see Simon Bridges hasn't been done much criticizing here. Uh, you know, if there was a criticism a few weeks ago, it's that lockdown didn't start fast enough. Yeah. It's not that there shouldn't be a lockdown, right? So everybody's really been on the same page and kind of acting together in a way um, that I can't imagine happening, uh, definitely not in the United States, but also not in lots of other places either. Like even South Korea, a very vibrant democracy, there was a lot of debate about whether they should lock down uh, parts of the country. Um, I read it somewhere. I can always always forget. Because, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, I don't know if you're the same, but when you in, kind of ingest media from 10 different sources, I always forget which one it's come from. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I think both national and Labor have said they're not going to campaign on COVID-19. So it's sort of going to be outside, like, cause, because, you know, this is the kind of thing, this is, as you know, you hear, you hear President Trump with his big, beautiful Bahrain, um talking about being a wartime president. But, you know, there's some, there's some truth to that. It's, it's something akin to that. And so that's the same for Jacinda. And normally what happens is that, that you, you, you keep those people in. I mean, it's the only, the only time in America that the Republicans have won the popular vote in the last 30 years was Bush in his second term after 9-11. And although after 9-11, within, that was three years later, that was most people were pretty unhappy about it. He still romped in with the popular vote as well. It's what happens. Um, mm-hmm. So it's likely that um, you know Labour will romp in this time around. But I do think it's quite a nice uh, spirit to be able to say, we're we're not going to. I guess what I'm what I'm inferring is, National's not going to criticise Labour on their COVID response, and Labour's not going to go yay us on their COVID response leading up to the election, which I think is which is which is a a, a good way to to set out a let's do best for the country without risk of how this is going to be used either for or against us. Yeah, 
yeah they're being grown-ups yeah I think it's just like yeah it's a very responsible thing to do i think and that this is not something that would be wished upon anybody i mean it's not like 9-11 where i mean obviously they didn't choose to be attacked but but bush chose to respond against afghanistan and chose to uh invade iraq on based on what we now know to be um false evidence new zealand you know is not declaring war on anybody yeah. in this situation this is not a choice yeah it's almost like um, war from an unknown enemy has been declared on us on some level yeah so and of. you know an invisible enemy an invisible enemy that doesn't respond to you know bombs being dropped or anything like that so which, really... which is why people are lining up and buying guns was so weird i saw a meme which is like you know you can't shoot corona to death you do know that don't you bizarre <laughs> So are you someone who also kind of keeps his eye, uh, keeps her eye on the political world? I'm sure as a journalist, that's a part of it from China, especially. And in, in that, in saying that, do you have any thoughts today, just to, to, to kind of tangent a little bit on Bernie dropping out? Yeah, I mean, I keep an eye on it, of course, like everybody. I mean, I... I don't know that I have any great insights into this, except, you know, it's kind of inevitable. It's like mathematically very, very difficult for him to get there. And, um, you know, what he'd been trying to do was to try to tilt the debate a bit and get some of his core concerns like income inequality and universal health care onto the democratic agenda and to bring Joe Biden a little bit more to the left. So he probably felt that he'd done as much as he could on that and yeah, wasn't going to go any further. So, and especially the environment there, how they can't campaign in public now, I think it was kind of inevitable. So yeah. I think it takes a lot of um, pressure off because like, look, you look this week, the uh, primaries that have still been going ahead in America, it's astounding to think that they're allowing people to go into public places, line up together, mm -hmm. you know, to make the decision, do I exercise my democratic right or, you know, do I ensure my safety? So mm. I think yeah, it had to be done. Yeah, that was Wisconsin. Wisconsin went this week, I think. Yeah, Wisconsin, um, yeah. Yeah, so it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens as they as they go through it there, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, there's one camp that's saying, you know, a coronavirus will be the, I was going to say the death of Trump. I don't want to use it. that's a, a inappropriate phrase to use. Will be the end of his term. But then again, following that idea that you know that kind of wartime emergency, um, state of emergency leaders typically get get voted back in. It'll be it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And I wonder because America does seem to be a bit behind the rest of the world with this outbreak. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they have their election on the first the first Tuesday of November. Gosh, are we, is, is anyone floated that question yet? Is it going to be, is, are there questions around the election? I know it's uh, several months away, but yeah. this will, this is big in um, New York at the moment. Is In six months' time, is it going to be big in Houston or is it going to be big in, you know, San Diego or where to from here? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's too far out now to be able to tell. But yeah, like the, I guess like the eggheads were saying, the talking heads were saying uh, when this happened in America that and the stock market started tanking that this would be really bad for Trump. But if you look at some of the recent polls that have been done, especially on Fox News and things where it's Trump's really core supporters, they think he's doing a great job. Like yeah. He's got 50% or most support amongst this. So his core supporters are not... Um, are not being swayed by the, by this issue. So, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it do, I don't think it changes a lot. Uh, it, maybe it'll change the independence in the middle, but um, but it's not as cut and dry as it might be in other places. Well, I'm hoping by November the world's 
return to some semblance of normal, mostly because uh, Fallout Boy, Weezer and Green Day are supposed to be playing in Dunedin, and I've already bought my four tickets. And if that didn't happen, that'd be a travesty. My, 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 my three kids would be shocked. They'd be, they went to uh, Ed Sheeran 18 months ago or two years ago, and, and the next big one's going to be Green Day. And So that's, that's, I mean, being selfish, that's the main reason. There's really no other reason why I hope the world gets back to normal other than that one concert. It's the only reason. <laughs> We've all got our motivations, right? <laughs> hey, look, um, you've got something coming up in a few minutes, but I'd love to just get a little uh, story from you also. Uh, I understand you were the first person to Facebook Live from North Korea. Is that a true yeah. true story? Tell us what tell us what um, North Korea is like as a as a Kiwi journalist working for an American paper. Yeah, I mean it's so hard to describe what North Korea is like because in so many ways it's like so much weirder than you expect it to be. Uh, like people people are so fearful and things are obviously so dysfunctional and it's really hard to convey that sense of repression and scaredness but then at the same time it's much more normal than you expect it to be because people are just going about their daily lives you know lining up waiting for the bus going to work getting their kids to school you know they are you know ordinary people like we are trying to make sure our kids have a better life than we do and just trying to get through the day um, so it's yeah, it's really difficult to describe, and you know, different there are different parts of North Korea. Pyongyang, the capital, is really. Um, I mean, sometimes now they call it Pyonghattan because it's uh, gotten a lot better under right. Kim Jong Un. He's done that on purpose. Uh, whereas if you're in the boonies up by the Chinese border in the mountains, you know, life is really, really grim and hasn't improved pretty much at all under Kim Jong Un. So yeah, it's different. But um, I've been to North Korea twelve times. I started wow. going in. Yeah, 2005 was my first time. And then my last time was 2016. And that was when the Washington Post was really big on Facebook living. And we were doing a lot of that from around the place. And I was able to get a North Korean SIM card to put into my phone. Oh, yeah. Clean phone. Uh, so that because um, you have to do Facebook live on a mobile and uh, there's no Wi-Fi in North Korea. So I had to do it on my phone. So I was basically like hanging halfway out the window of my 37th floor hotel room uh to get the signal strong enough so i could broadcast live and so yeah that was pretty um i got a lot of viewers i think just interested to see even like what north korea looked like out my window and the hotel room and to see what i was saying so yeah i remember um somebody posting on twitter a few months later that when facebook released the data about how um all the countries in the world that had done facebook live yeah and one came back saying one person in north korea <laughs> wow in north korea is facebook live <laughs> and yeah someone responded sorry to burst your bubble but that was it and, like, yeah. and that was um have you ever felt like in, in that setting um like concerned for yourself or or is it so sort of controlled because obviously you don't have to have government approval that you're always fine it's always safe there's never a concern yeah, I mean, no, I've never felt unsafe there. I mean, yeah, you do have a minder. You actually have two minders because the minder needs a minder for the other minder. You know, everybody's got to watch each other. And you can't go anywhere. You can't walk around by yourself. You can't talk to people. You know, everything is uh, choreographed. You know, almost what you eat for breakfast is choreographed by the government, so the regime. So there's no independent reporting there. So, no, I mean, I have... Uh, gotten a little bit bolshy with them at times when I've wanted to ask questions or go places or take photos, but mm -hmm. always kind of within the limits. I've known not to um, push things too far and 
you know, the thing that they're really concerned about is the leadership in North Korea. They right. don't want any criticism of the leaders. So you can ask a lot of questions. As long as you don't touch that third rail, then you're pretty much okay. So I've always tried to um, do my job, but behave myself uh, while there. But having said that, you know, now I've written a book about Kim Jong-un, which just doesn't paint him out to be a particularly nice guy. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. So now I would not go back to North Korea. Because At all? That is rail. No. So, well, so, if, so would your... Washington Post wouldn't even ask you then because of that? Well, I don't cover North Korea anymore. That's oh, right, the job of, of the person in Japan. Right. But I'm in China dealing with China. But also, you know, I've been to North Korea 12 times. You know, I've done a lot of reporting there. I can take a break. And, you know, I, I joke that I'll go back after unification and be the Pyongyang bureau chief. <laughs> That'd be a great job. Um, when do you get back to Beijing? What's the What's the plan to get you back to your bureau chief job? I have no idea. So China has banned all foreigners from entering, even people with valid residence permits like me, because now all of their cases pretty much are imported infections that right. people arriving into the country with coronavirus. Like more than 90% of these people are Chinese nationals who yep. are coming back from overseas, but the government needs to look like they're doing something. So they've said, you know, no more foreigners. So until that changes, I am stuck in beautiful Hawke's Bay. Oh, it's a tough life <laughs> having to be stuck. Are you able to keep working? Like, obviously, you just wrote a piece about New Zealand's response. Is there just a yeah. is, is there a pivot for you to keep writing for the for the post now, or do you still try and cover yeah. what's happening in China from beautiful no, Hawke's I'm Bay? I'm still covering what like the whole last month. I've been covering China from New Zealand, uh, which is obviously difficult. But we have researchers in Beijing still who can help me and you know I'm not able to go I wasn't in Wuhan yesterday of right. course but just trying to do the best I can and yeah so that's the first New Zealand story I wrote that yesterday so now I'm looking around thinking oh maybe there's something fun I can do here while I'm here since I'll be here for a few more months so. hey I was going to ask as well um it's interesting that people talk about the newspaper industry dying mm -hmm. But so often the CNNs of the world, the Fox News of the world, the MSNBCs of the world will run a story starting it by saying the Washington Post has reported. So it seems that without that newspaper industry, there kind of wouldn't be other industry industries following it on for it on many of these big stories. How does that sit with the newspaper industry that somewhere like CNN or whatever will then basically use your, not your IP necessarily, but certainly your work and your effort and your company's money for paying the person to do that to then launch their own series of stories? Yeah, no, I think it goes back and forth both ways. And it's true, especially, yeah, Washington Post and New York Times are, you know, it's kind of a golden moment for journalism. Uh, there's just like every day there are more and more scoops you know everybody's breaking stories about various things to do with the trump administration so there's a lot of competition and i think it's good for everybody to have mm. all of that coverage going on but yeah and so of course everybody picks it up like if the new york times report breaks a story our guys in washington will then go and like stand it up themselves confirm it but they'll write into the story you know this was first reported by the new york times they will credit them too um, same thing. Sometimes CNN breaks the story, and and the Washington Post or New York Times will um, will credit them for it. So it's kind of circular. I mean, right. it's good for all of us. I think you know, if CNN's talking about the Washington Post, hopefully it encourages more people to talk for the to the Washington Post or to subscribe to the Washington Post. I think you know the COVID situation now creates a really weird dynamic because 
you know, there's so much interest, you know, newspapers and media have never been more important in some ways and that, you know, our clicks are going through the roof, mm. uh, you know, the engagement in stories, the desire for information is huge, yet our whole business model is collapsing around yeah, us, right? Yeah. Advertisers and things, the ways that we keep afloat is changing. And so for a big newspaper like the New York Times and the Washington Post, you know, Hopefully we will get through this. Um, but, you know, when you look at New Zealand, it's really tough. Look at what happened to Bauer this last week. Yeah. It's really tough. So, um, yeah, it's really sad to see, you know, I think New Zealand journalists are doing a great job with their limited resources, but it's really sad to see how limited the resources are and that, yeah, we're a tiny country. It's hard to have that economy of scale. Well, Anna Fifield, uh, the bureau chief of the Washington Post uh, based out of Beijing, currently based out of um, uh, Hawke's Bay, hoping you're in Napier, the beautiful Art Deco city that you're in. Hapier, uh, Napier or Havelock North, my two favourite places over that way. Havelock North. I'm in Havelock North. Perfect. Yeah. Um, but I grew up in Hastings. I'm a Hastings girl. Oh, very good. Well, thanks for um, joining us. Thanks for giving us some time today. I really do genuinely appreciate it. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy your time in New Zealand and we'll um, we'll keep reading your, your, your uh, information on China coming out of Hawke's Bay. So uh, thanks so much for joining yeah. us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I mean, it's so nice. This is the longest time I've spent at home in 20 years. Uh, but I had one day between isolation and lockdown. So I'm really looking forward to being at the other end of this and being able to have a flip <laughs> wine with savory muffin. It'll be good. All right. Hey, thanks, Eves. <laughs> thanks, Pat. See ya. All right, there you go, guys. That's another edition of the Department of Conversation. If you want to find out more about us, head to www the doc.nz uh, if you want to find out what's coming up uh, probably the two best ways to do it is to follow me on twitter just at pat brittenden or go and like the facebook page www.facebook.com forward slash d-e-p-t of conversation uh, d-e-p-t of conversation uh, just search us on facebook and don't get us confused with there's some little group called the department of uh, conservation i don't know what that is it's some little pop-up group recently that's trying to steal our name i don't know what it's all about but we're the department of conversation and you can find us on facebook and you can find me on twitter as well um other than that as i've been saying the last few episodes there are a lot of people who are going to have a chat with us who want to have a chat with us who want to hang out with us uh, one of the people i will bring to your attention is on sunday it is easter sunday and i'm going to be talking with a progressive uh pastor from the US, her name is Jory Micah. Jory will be joining us uh, to have a chat live on Sunday. Um, I guess about life, the universe, and everything, and in particular Easter Sunday. Other than that, a ton of other guests are going to be coming up. We're just nailing down schedules and trying to figure people out. So thanks again for joining us. If you're listening to us on iTunes, please consider a rate and a review. And until we see you next time, hey, root. <laughs>